Presenting Focus on Truth, the Bible teaching ministry of Chuck Bradshaw. Focus on Truth is a non-denominational evangelical Christian ministry to the marketplace. Focus on Truth is dedicated to proclaiming the gospel of the free grace of God and helping people understand the practical relevance of the Bible. Join now with Chuck as together we focus on the truth of God's Word. This is the fifth in the series that I've entitled, Lord, Teach Us to Pray. And today we're considering a couple of David's uh, psalms, uh, which are really prayers. They're penitential psalms of Psalm 51 and Psalm 32. You should have uh, your notes there in front of you. I want us to talk a little bit about the historical background of this. Uh, there are seven penitential psalms in the Psaltery, uh, Psalms 6, 32, 38, 51, 102, 130, and 143, for those of you who are taking notes. A penitential psalm is a psalm of contrition, and confession, and repentance. Uh, at this particular time of year that we are doing this study, uh, this is the Lenten season, and of course that's the 40 days of preparation prior to Easter. And in many of the uh, churches uh, during this particular season, uh, these psalms, uh, the penitential psalms in particular, are uh, are read. Uh, psalm 51 has certainly been a favorite among well-known historical figures. It was recited by Sir Thomas More and Lady Jane Grey as they stood on the scaffold uh, awaiting uh, execution uh, during the time of Henry VIII and also subsequently uh, Queen Mary. Uh, Henry V had uh, Psalm 51 read to him on his deathbed. William Carey, who was a great missionary to India, requested that Psalm 51 be the text of his funeral sermon. Psalm 51 is a, uh, as I mentioned earlier, is a penitential psalm. It's written by David, and uh, we'll consider that in just a moment. But before we do, let's uh, let's look at the historical background of this. Why did David write Psalm 51 and subsequently Psalm 32? Incidentally, uh, the psalms do not uh, in the Psaltery do not necessarily appear in chronological order. Remember, we've already looked at Psalm 90. When we looked at some of the prayers of Moses, uh, and obviously uh, since Moses wrote that, and it's listed as Psalm 90, it's hard to believe that there were 89 psalms that somebody wrote before Moses wrote that, and then anything that David wrote would have come after that. So they're not in order, and but in, uh, in terms of chronology, Psalm 51 did come first, and then subsequently... Psalm 32 was written. Now let's look at the historical background. And I put uh, a few, a little bit of this in your notes, so uh, we'll read some and we'll just, I'll just make a few comments as well. From 2 Samuel 11 and 12, let's begin with 2 Samuel 11. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. Normally a king would go out with his troops. At this point in his life, David is probably in his early to mid-50s. Some people say he's going through a midlife crisis. That's the reason for things that were, that were happening here in 2 Samuel 11. I'm not so sure about that because uh, David uh, did have an eye for the ladies. At this point, he had already uh, taken a number of wives, certainly more than 10 wives he, he had. Uh, and we know that David knew the, uh, the Torah, 
the first five books of the Bible, uh, the Pentateuch, because uh, so many of the Psalms that he wrote are reflections on, uh, on God's law, what God had to say. And yet, one of the things that God had to say in the, uh, in the writings of Moses was that uh, eventually there would be a king in Israel, and when that happened, that one of the kings, one of the things that a king was not supposed to do was supposed to multiply wives to himself. And the reason is because those wives would tend to turn him away from the Lord. There's no question that David knew those verses that forbade that, and yet uh, he he still multiplied wives, and uh, so he he did certainly have an eye for the ladies. Uh, in fact, uh, just by way of uh, reflection, David's son Solomon carried on his uh, this tradition of his dad, except he did it in uh, just extremity, because remember Solomon had 300 wives and 700 concubines and certainly when you look at the latter end of Solomon's life uh, his wives certainly did turn his uh, turn him away from uh, from the from the Lord so it says uh, it was the springtime of the year and David had sent Joab and the army out and Joab you'll recall is David's uh, uh, nephew and he was the general of, of uh, David's army. It says, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. Uh, the Ammonites were in the area where Jordan is today. Remember, the kingdom of uh, the capital of Jordan is uh, is Ammon. It says, but David remained at Jerusalem, so he's not out with his troops. It happened late one afternoon when David rose from his couch and was walking on the roof. Now it's late in the afternoon, and David arose from his couch. So what's David been doing? Apparently he's been taking a nap. Why isn't he taking care of affairs of the state uh, since he's back at the capital at Jerusalem? Uh, of course, the Bible doesn't tell us. But apparently David was sort of uh, uh, just sort of relaxing and leaning back on his lees, as it as it were, and uh, think begun to let things uh, rather slide. So it says he was walking on the roof of the king's house. Remember, uh, uh, Jerusalem was up in uh, up in a mountain, so people up there had uh, flat roofs, and they'd have things like similar to our patio furniture out on there because it was generally a prevailing wind, particularly in the late afternoon and evening. So it was a nice, cool place to uh, to sit and enjoy the uh, the the weather. So David is up there on his roof. And it says um, that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is not this Bathsheba the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. And then she returned to her house. Okay, now notice what's happened here, and there's a an interesting progression of what's going on. You really see uh, how temptation takes place. It says that David saw her. Uh, he apparently coveted her because he subsequently took her. Remember, she didn't. She couldn't say, "No, I I can't go with you. I'm a married woman." Uh, in fact, my husband Uriah the Hittite is uh, is out with uh, with your nephew Joab, and he's at the front lines fighting uh, fighting the Ammonites right now. And uh, you know, I just can't do anything like that. You you say no to the king. The king had all authority. 
And then subsequent to that, uh, we see David hiding his sin. So there's this, uh, there's this progression. I saw, I coveted, I took, and I hid. And uh, we can hide things from a lot of people, but one person we can't hide things from is God Himself. So, notice what happens. And incidentally, notice when he inquires about the woman. Who is this woman? Uh, they give her, whoever is given this report, gives David the name. It's Bathsheba. And then says, she is the daughter of Eliam, and she is also the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Among David's mightiest men in his army, uh, among the 37 mightiest men, uh, two names that appear there are the names of Eliam and the name of Uriah the Hittite. Well, we understand why this guy would have reported Uriah the Hittite, uh, because that's obviously Bathsheba's husband. And uh, that should have put up a signal in David's mind right then, no, this is not the thing that I need to do. This is the wrong thing to do because I'm committing adultery, and obviously that's stepping across the line, because what is, what is, in Ten Commandments, what does it say? Don't commit adultery. In fact, David's going to break another one, because he's going to have, uh, before it's all over, he's going to have her husband killed, and so he's going to have broken don't murder as well. But in Second Samuel chapter 23, and this is not in your notes, I just didn't have room to put all of this in your notes, but in 2 Samuel 23, right near the end of the, that chapter, if you just want to jot down that reference, there's a list of the, uh, of the, the brave men, not, not all of the men in David's army, but the, the mightiest of the men in David's army. And in verse 34, the, there are a couple of names mentioned, and the second of those is Eliam, the son of Ahithophel of Gilo. And I think that tells us why the person who reported uh, Bathsheba's identity to David mentioned Eliam because Eliam was the son of Ahithophel. You say, well, who's Ahithophel? Ahithophel was David's counselor. And so that makes Ahithophel Bathsheba's grandfather. And that may help explain why later on down the line when there was an attempt uh, by Absalom, an, attempt, uh, an attempted coup against his father David, that one of the people who joined that coup attempt was Ahithophel, who had been a loyal follower of David for years and years and a loyal counselor for David. Uh, apparently this grandfather just never got over what, uh, what David had done to his granddaughter and to, his, uh, uh, and to her husband. Uh, because uh, also in that same passage, uh, the very last verse of... 2 Samuel 23, the name Uriah the Hittite, and it says 37 in all. So it's talking about these 37 mighty men. But it goes on to say there in 2 Samuel chapter 11, you see there's a complication. It says, And the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I'm pregnant. Now, what's David going to do? Obviously there is a problem here because her husband is on the front line, and in a matter of a few months, it is going to be obvious to everybody around that she is pregnant. So what is David going to do? Well, David came up with a brilliant idea. He sent to the front and said, uh, Have Uriah sent back here to me to give me a report on the war? And, of course, the idea was that when Uriah came back, he would have normal sexual relations with his wife. 
and uh, nobody would think anything about it. They say, well, you know, the uh, old Uriah came home to give a report to the king, and I guess he spent a little time at the house, and that's uh, and you know, and the result is uh, there's a baby on the way. Well, Uriah came, but Uriah was a man of uh, of genuine character, and he didn't go home. Uh, in fact, uh, David asked him about that, and he said, I, how, how could I go home? He said, look, my comrades in arms are right there on the front lines, and they're not getting to enjoy uh, uh, you know, conjugal bliss with their, uh, with their wives, so I just can't do that. Well, David had him stay over an extra day, and David got him drunk thinking that by getting getting him drunk that his inhibitions would you know would be reduced and he'd probably go on home and uh, take care of business that didn't happen either so when it just was apparent that it was not going to work david had a letter written and signed it and it said uh and and put it in the hand of uriah the hittite said take this back to general joab and the letter said uh, put Uriah in the forefront of the battle where the where the mightiest men of the Ammonites are and withdraw from him so that he'll be killed. And that's exactly what Joab did. And it says, uh, and we pick up the story in verse 26, it says, When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife, and bore him a son. So, well, looks like maybe David got away with something. No, look at the last sentence. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Now, during this time, uh, there's a year that passes before David's repentance comes along. The baby's born, and then the baby gets very ill, and, uh, and eventually the baby will, uh, will, will die. But David's conscience during that year is really bothering. If, you, if you'll notice in your notes under Roman numeral chapter, uh, Roman numeral 2, from Psalm 32, verses 3 and 4. Now this is a reflection. This is what David would write even after he wrote Psalm 51. In recalling the, that, that time, he says, For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Notice his, his conscience is really uh, giving him problems. Why? Because he's guilty. His conscience should be giving him a problem. You know, when, when people say they feel bad, we say, well, you, you, you ought not to feel bad. Well, not necessarily. If they've done something wrong, particularly if they've sinned against God, they ought to feel worse than they do. That's God's way of very often of bringing a person uh, to repentance. And, and there's uh, apparently a lot of physiological effects that were going along with the uh, with the guilt as well. Well, that brings us to Second Samuel 12. About a year has passed at this point, and David has is unrepentant. Uh, the baby has uh, that Bathsheba was uh, carrying, the little boy has been born. And so God initiates David's repentance, just like in the Garden of Eden. Remember what uh, what our primeval parents did? They ran and hid because of their sense of guilt. They hid themselves from God. It was God who came looking for them. They didn't look for God. God looked for them. And you see the same thing going on here. God sent uh, the prophet Nathan. Now, as far as we know, Nathan was not a writing prophet. We don't have anything by the prophet Nathan written. 
but he was a speaking prophet and he uh, served David, served God, and, and God used him to, uh, to uh, in the life of David. So he sent him to David and he had, he had Nathan tell David a story. And the story was about a very wealthy man who had lots of, uh, just lots of flocks, lots of livestock. And uh, he had a neighbor who was a poor man who had only one little ewe lamb. And the story was that the rich man had somebody come visit him. And instead of taking one of his uh, one of the lambs from his own huge flocks, he took uh, he took the only lamb that this neighbor poor neighbor of his had, and uh, you know, sacri- uh, not sacrificed it, but killed it and uh, and served it to the uh, to his uh, to his visitor. Well, when Nathan told that story, David went ballistic. And he said, the man that did that ought to have to repay that poor man four times over. And then on top of that, that rich man that did that, he ought to be killed. Well, now it's true that uh, under the old covenant, the Mosaic law required that if you stole an animal from someone... Uh, they they found out you were the thief that you were to re- restore it fourfold, so you would have to replace it uh, with four animals. So that that part was true, but there's nothing in the Mosaic law about uh, a thief having to uh, to be executed for his thievery. So uh, I think you see the effect of the of the the physiological stress that uh, David was under during this year. And just the way his conscience was working on him, that he just he just goes over the top uh, at this point. And Nathan, I'm sure, extended his hand toward David, although it does not say that. But it says, Nathan said to David, you are the man. Now, he didn't say you the man. He said, you are the man. You are the rich man who did this. And notice what David does. Uh, well, let's let's read first what the the rest of what uh, what Nathan said. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel: I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord? Now, remember, the word despise means to take lightly, to essentially view it as not having any real ramifications at all. Why have you taken lightly the word of the Lord to do what's evil in His sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. There's the charge. You are guilty of murder. Here are the consequences. Verse 10, Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. Uh, dire consequences. And that happened. Remember the, the coup I mentioned earlier that, that's going to happen later where uh, the really the apple of David's eye, his son Absalom, is going to attempt a coup against his father? That's exactly what Absalom did. When David, had to, David and his loyalists had to flee Jerusalem, Absalom and his army came in 
to Jerusalem. And the first thing they did, at the advice of Ahithophel, the father of the grandfather of Bathsheba, the first thing that, uh, that Absalom did was to set up a tent on top of the king's palace, put the harem, put David's harem in there, and then go into that harem in front of everybody. And essentially what, uh, now it was a good move politically, because what it did was it, 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 it said volumes to the people who were watching Absalom. It said, I am burning all the bridges. There is no way I can ever back out of this because I have just, uh, I have just done something that uh, kings just don't tolerate. And the only thing left to do is to get rid of my father, David, now. Notice, uh, let's, uh, let's keep reading verse 13. Nathan, um, sorry, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Notice, he, he stopped hiding now. When God put His finger on him and said, You are the man. That is, the, the proverbially, proverbially or figuratively the finger of God through the speech of Nathan. You are the man then David's response is not, well, you know, she shouldn't have been out there bathing on the roof. I mean, I'm just a man. What do you expect? And you know, yeah, and you have to give a little, give a little for kings because we can do some things that other people can't do. There was none of that. It was, yes, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Notice what David had done was David had committed two sins, adultery and murder. And the Mosaic law, and the, in the Mosaic law, in the, in the Levitical system of sacrifice, there were no sacrifices that you could offer for that. The only thing that you could look forward to as an adulterer or a murderer, first degree murderer, was death, death by execution. That's what David deserved. And yet God has said, no, I'm put away your sin. You, you're not going to die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. And that child did die. And three of David's children, boys, died very violent deaths, one of whom was Absalom. Uh, you know, again, you see, you see the the fourfold, four for one. Um, God forgives, but when God forgives, He does not always uh, get rid of all of the consequences. If He did, we'd never we'd never learn a lesson. We just think, well, you know, I'm going to do this. I'll ask for forgiveness, and everything will be cool. And God just doesn't operate that way. He can, uh, our lives can be miserable. He can make our lives miserable so that we won't forget. And so we will think, you know, I know it's wrong to do this against God and that ought to be my primary reason for not doing so and so is because I know that is uh, uh, against God's law and it would be displeasing to God. But deep down inside, the reason I don't want to do it is because I don't want to go through that again. Sometimes we think that way. And it's sad that we think that way, but the truth is, is God will use those consequences in our life to keep us, to, to move us in the, in the right direction and to keep us from doing that again. So, David has confessed his sin. And remember the word 
confess. In the New Testament, the word confess is the word homologeo, and it means to say the same thing as. It doesn't, uh, when we confess our sin, it doesn't mean we're giving God information that, uh, that all of a sudden God says, oh, you know, I didn't realize that you did all that. No, God's omniscient. He knows everything. In fact, He knows what we're going to do before we ever even do it. But when we confess, we say the same thing as. In other words, God says, what I did was sin. And I agree with God, yes, yes. This, this was not some foible on my part. This was not something that somebody else is responsible for. If they hadn't done so and so, then I wouldn't have done this. No, I agree with God. This is sin. You know, God's going to have to deal with somebody else about what they did, but God's dealing with me about what I did. Now, as a result of all of this, David wrote two Psalms, Psalm 51 and Psalm 32. And we want to consider Psalm 51, first of all, because that was the one that he wrote apparently shortly there after this incident. After this incident, Notice, first of all, the superscription in the psalm to the choir master. So that tells us what? Yes, it was written to be sung, which is great. Because uh, remember, one of, the, one of the things that we remember are the things uh, that, that sort of have a tune to them. That, uh, the lyrical part helps us. I, how many of us still, if we if we've got a uh, some sort of filing cabinet at the at the office or the house, and we start looking for something, how many of us still say A B C L M N O P, and we go through that, and it's sort of a you know we don't sing it real loud, but that helps us to remember. Well, by putting all of these things uh, in uh, in some sort of uh, hymn type fashion and in a musical fashion, uh, it would help the uh, the readers and the listeners to recall what David is seeking to teach. It says to the choir master, a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. So uh, this directly resulted. This psalm directly resulted as a res- uh, in response to what's happened to David in Second. Samuel 11 and 12. Notice how he begins. Uh, Incidentally, there are six parts to Psalm 51. Um, The first part uh, is uh, is an approach to God on the basis of His mercy, and it's the only approach that we have. We don't go to God and say, Lord, I want you to... uh, What I really want you to do is have justice, is, is, is just give me justice. Well, if God gave us justice, we'd all go to hell. Because as sinners, that's what we deserve. And to get justice means you get what you deserve. <clears throat> and we can't, we can't go to Him on the brace, basis of, Lord, uh, want you to give me grace. Why not? Because grace is unmerited favor. We haven't done anything to merit it. So what is it that we need? We need mercy. We need God's mercy. Remember, grace, grace is really the good stuff that God gives us that we don't deserve. Mercy is not getting the bad stuff from God that we do deserve. And that's what David is praying for right here. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Lord, I know they're written in a book. Get that big eraser and and blot them out, if you will, please, Lord. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Notice he uses those same three words that we've talked about in 
in previous prayers, the words are transgression, iniquity, and sin. Transgression means there's a line drawn. I know where the line is, and I step across the line anyway. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not do murder. And what did David do? He stepped across the line. That was a transgression. Iniquity, that's the bent, the crookedness. Uh, that has to do with our nature. That there's a, there's a bent within me away from God. And God, unless God does something about that, it will never ever change because I can't change it myself. Can a leopard change his spots? The scriptures ask, and of course the answer is no. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Get this bent out of me. Turn me toward you, Lord, and cleanse me, purge me from my sin. Remember, this, the word sin uh, simply means that we miss, we miss the target. We, it's, a, it's more of a general word. We miss the target. If we're, uh, if we're all going to report down to Miami in our Speedos and get all greased up and we're all going to swim down to Cuba, uh, there's some of us who will die and surf there at Miami. Uh, there's some of us who might make it out a mile or two, maybe a couple of us that might make it even a little bit farther than that. But nobody's going to make it to Cuba. Everybody's going to fall short. Some do better than others, but everybody falls short. That's sin. We, we never measure up to God's righteous requirements. That's why we need the Lord Jesus, because He was perfect. And if we put our trust in Him, then what the Scriptures say is that God takes all the perfection and all the righteousness of Jesus and He puts that over onto our ledger. He, he accounts that to us. And He takes all the sin, the wickedness, the depravity, all that stuff that we are by nature and by choice, and He has placed that on Jesus. And Jesus has borne the penalty for all of that. He goes on to say in verse 3, For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Let's pause there for just a minute. Uh, <clears throat> now, we've already said that uh, confession of sin is not giving God information. He's, uh, he's agreeing with God that He has done what's wrong. Uh, he's, he's admitting the fact that He's failed in three different ways. He's stepped across a boundary. His nature is corrupt. And also, He has missed the mark. Uh, there's never been, at least, never even one time in His existence that He was not a sinner. But his, and His sin is not against God, He says. Why does he say that? Because God in His law defines what sin really is. And a wrong done to a neighbor is really uh, a wrong against the image of God. I think that's, I think that's, what he's, uh, that, that's the point that he's making here. He's not excusing himself in terms of what went on with he and Bathsheba, but he's just pointing out the fact that really the ultimate problem is that he has the sin he's committed is against God himself. And that's where the problem is. But he goes on to say, he says, uh, the reason that I'm admitting this, Lord, and have sinned and done what's evil is so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. See, somebody might look at this and say, whoo, that's, 
I tell you what, what God did to him was really over the top. I, you know, I know what David did was wrong, but it just seemed like, man, he got way more than he deserved when, when God took him to the woodshed. And David says, no, 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 that is not the case. Not at all. He says, God is perfectly justified in what he did. Uh, when God meted out this chastisement to me, God was exactly right because I deserve everything that God is giving me in terms of this chastisement. In fact, God is being merciful. I really deserve even more than this. In the final analysis, I deserve to die for my sins. He says, uh, <clears throat> he goes on to say, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother did conceive me. He's not saying that, uh, that a man and a woman who are married to one another, uh, when they have uh, sexual relations and, and a baby uh, results from that, he's not saying that, uh, that those sexual relations are sinful. In fact, just the opposite is true. That's a very blessed thing in the eyes of God when a, a married man and woman uh, have a sexual uh, union because it's, uh, you know, the two become one uh, not only psychologically but also physically as well. But I think what he's, the point that he's making is that... Uh, among the other things that we pass along, you know, when the, the, the sperm and the egg get together and, uh, and then there's a, there's a baby that, that is created out of, uh, out of all of that. Uh, the baby grows in the woman's womb. And certainly there is DNA from both the man and the woman, and that's the reason you're, well, he's got her eyes and, you know, praise the Lord, he doesn't have his daddy's nose or that sort of thing. But part of what gets passed down from a spiritual standpoint, is kind of a spiritual DNA. And the truth is, is that both mom and dad are sinners. And this child who is born is a sinner. And if you don't think a little baby is a sinner, they're not, they're not innocent. You know, we look at them sometimes at the hospital through that big glass one. Oh, look at that little innocent baby. That's not an innocent baby. That's a little sinner. And all, all you got to do is cross that baby just a little bit, and you'll find out that beneath... The skin of that child beats the heart of a rebel. And that's going to be a problem for that child until God in His mercy reaches out and changes the heart of that child. That's the reason we need to be praying for our children. Oh, God, have mercy on them. Change them. Lord, I, you know... There's certain things that we can model for our children, and we can uh, we can do the things that the Bible tells us to do. But in the final analysis, if they're going to change, God is the one who's going to have to change them, just like it was in our own case. He goes on to say in verse seven, "Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow." You say, "What in the world?" I understand purge. This, David wants this stuff out, just get it out of his system, the sin. But what is this hyssop stuff? Well, remember, uh, it was God who, who initiated the Passover during the day of Moses. And he, he told Moses, he said, now you tell, he, you tell the congregation, here's what you do. On this particular day, you're to, you're to get a lamb and you're to, uh, and there'll be one lamb per family. If it's a real small family, then it could be that a couple of families can, can join together and use a lamb. But what you're going to do is you're going to cut that lamb's throat as a, as a sacrifice. You're going to collect some of the blood in, the, uh, in, the, in a basin. 
And then you're going to take that blood and you're going to put some on the lintel and some on the doorposts of your house. And that way, when the death angel comes over Egypt that night, tonight, when the death angel comes over and he sees the blood, he's going to pass over your house. That's where the term came from. Well, how is it that you're going to get the blood from the basin to the lintel and the doorposts of the house? And God said, take a bunch of hyssop. Hyssop was a little bush that just grew wild all over the place. And so you just pluck a little bit of hyssop and you dip it in the, the basin of blood and then you just splash that on the, on the doorposts and on the lintel. And of course, it's a, it's a picture in some ways of the cross. Uh, and certainly it's a picture of the shed blood of the Lord Jesus and the wrath of God will not fall on us uh, if we're covered with the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Beautiful picture. So what is David saying when he says, purge me with hyssop? He's saying, Lord, apply the sacrificial blood to me and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. What's he been hearing? He's been hearing sadness uh, because his conscience has been so uh, giving him such a hard time. And it should have. See, the I don't know whether David had any counselors that'd come to him and say, "Well, now, David, your problem is you just uh, you just don't have a good self-image. You you need to let me give you these things that you can do that'll give you a better self-image." No, what David needed was not a not a good self-image. He didn't need a bad self-image. What he needed was an accurate self-image. And when we disobey God, we ought to feel bad. Be careful that if somebody comes to you and they're talking about, you know, well, I'm just, I'm just really struggling. Don't jump in there all of a sudden and try to do things or say things that's going to necessarily make them feel better without talking first about how'd you get in this condition. Because it may be that they don't feel bad enough. Well, I've gone to meddling now, haven't I? Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. I think that's probably uh, sort of uh, metaphorical, as it were, because he he talked about uh, back in Psalm 32 that that uh, that my bones wasted away. Uh, again, the physiological effects that he was feeling. He says, "Hide your face from my sins and blot out." All my iniquities. In other words, uh, clear clear the books of my sins away. Now, on the second page of your notes, I have uh, I have repeated the last part of Psalm 51, just so you wouldn't have to be flipping back and forth. Notice the next thing he does is he appeals for an inward renewal. Remember the the, the real the, certainly what he's done outwardly is a problem. Adultery and murder definitely are problems. They are sins, and they are problems. But where do they originate? They originate from within. And he says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Now the word he uses for create here is the word bara. B-A-R-A in English characters. Bara. And it means to bring into existence out of nothing. To create ex nihilo. It's, it's the same word that's used in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, where it says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. 
Now, how did God do that? Well, he spoke it into existence. God didn't have a, a bunch of stuff over here and said, well, I think I'll take this and I'll just, I'll just make the heaven, I'll just change this stuff into the heavens and the earth. No, he brought it into existence out of nothing. And that's what David says. He says, Lord, bring into existence out of nothing a clean heart. Why, why would he say that? Because he recognizes that within him, there is nothing within him that God can use to bring about the cleansing that he needs and this new nature that he needs. That if he's going to have a new nature, that this new nature is going to have to come from God and God is going to have to create it because the, the stuff that's in David... God can't use. And it's the same way with us. If any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things become new. And in uh, that's 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. And that word new, there are two words in the uh, Greek New Testament for the word new. One of them is neos, N-E-O-S, which means the newest one, like a neonatal nursery. That's uh, that's the new babies that are that are born, or a, a neos automobile would be the one that just came off the assembly line, the newest one off the assembly line. That's not the word that's used in Second Corinthians five seventeen that we are new creations. It's the word kainos, k i k a i n o s, kainos. It means a prototype. There's one that's never been like it before. It's, uh, it's, it's something brand new, and you look around, and there's nothing like it at all. Of course, the only thing that it's akin to at all is the person of the Lord Jesus, because it's His nature through the Spirit of God that God implants in us when He saves us. Renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from Your presence, and take not Your Holy Spirit from me. Why is it wrong for, a, you know, for the, it, this is a great psalm and it's wonderful that we read it during Lenten season or any other season, any other time. But why is it wrong for us to pray, God, don't take your spirit from me? Well, because God has promised, I will never leave you, I will never forsake you. So if we start praying this, you know, God theoretically could say, hey, you need to read the book. I've already told you. I'm not going to leave you. I'm not going to abandon you. But there are times when we don't sense the presence of God in our lives uh, the way that we do at other times. But it doesn't mean He's gone. It doesn't mean He's abandoned us. And then He goes on to say, Restore to me the joy of your salvation. See, some people will argue that David lost his salvation because of his adultery and, and the murder charges, which he was obviously convicted of doing in the eyes of God and in the eyes of all of us who read the story. But the truth is, is that uh, he did not lose his salvation because he doesn't pray, God, please save me again. He says, restore to me the joy of your salvation. Lord, I've lost my joy. Well, why did you lose your joy? Because I've sinned against God. And I need to confess. I need to repent. I need for God to purge me and cleanse me and wash me. If we confess our sins, He is uh, gracious and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, even the stuff that we don't even realize that we've done.
Uphold me with a willing spirit. Give me the inner desire to do what's right is, is what he's praying for. And then he makes a promise. He says, Lord, if, if you'll change me, if you'll make me into the man that I really want to be, I want to be one who loves you, who just seeks your face and wants to do the right thing. He says in verse 13, Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Notice, he's saying essentially, I change me, I'll talk about what I've done. Can you imagine? Here's a man who's willing to talk about his an embarrassing testimony. We should be willing to talk. We don't, now we don't have to give a lot of graphic details about things, but we need to be willing to own up to things that we've done because... There's nothing unique in the world. We're all struggling with the same things. They have different faces. They're different names. But they're basically the same kinds of things. And it's, it's amazing how we can encourage one another and help one another along with, uh, with, with a testimony. Deliver me from blood, blood guiltiness, O God. Notice the, the, the incident that having killed her husband is still a big deal. O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. Lord, just wash me, and I will talk about your mercy and your grace. I will sing praises to you. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise for you. Notice verse 16. This goes back to what we were saying about the Mosaic Law. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. There were none available. There was nothing he, there was nothing he could do. The penalty was death for both the things he'd done. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. And that's what we see in David demonstrating here is that contrition. And then uh, the last couple of verses are really a prayer for national uh, renewal. There is some question as to whether or not David wrote these or whether these were added on later. And in the final analysis, it doesn't really matter, but it, uh, we'll read them. It says, Do good to Zion in your pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. When we get... When, when things get right within us, when God sets things right, when He washes us and changes us and purges us, we've confessed our sin, then God is ready to accept our sacrifices of praise, our burnt offerings, as it were, those peace offerings, those, uh, then God will certainly accept those kinds of things. Now, Psalm 32 uh, is a reflection, apparently, of, uh, of Psalm 51. Because remember back in verse 13 of Psalm 51, what did David promise? He said, Lord, if you get me squared away here in this terms of this sin business, forgive me, cleanse me, wash me, purge me. He says, then I will teach transgressors your ways. Uh, I will declare your praise. I will sing aloud of your righteousness. That apparently is what Psalm 32 is all about. It, that's what David is doing here. He is fulfilling his vow. Because he said, and notice it says, a maskeel of David. A maskeel is a Hebrew term that apparently means the giving of instruction. 
So he says, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered or atoned for. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Notice he uses the same terminology that he used back in the early part of Psalm 51. And he says, God has dealt with that in my life. Yes, I crossed a boundary. I have missed the mark. I have a bent away from God and God has cleansed me and purged me. And blessed is the man who finds himself in that situation. And also, one thing, I, I we sort of touched on this, but it says, blessed, verse 2, blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. Now again, this goes back to what God does uh, when we come to Him through faith in Christ. And that is, He takes... Uh, all of our sin is accounted to the Lord Jesus, and all the righteousness of the Lord Jesus is accounted to us. It's a, it's a great picture. God made Second uh, Corinthians chapter five verse twenty one. God made Him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us. To be the, that is the sin sacrifice, the sin offering for us. Why? So that we might be made the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. God took all of our sin, all the sins of God's people placed on Christ, and then Christ dies for those sins. Didn't die for His own sins because He didn't have any. But what does God do with all that righteousness, all that perfection of Jesus? All, 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 of, all of that. He takes that righteousness and He places it to our account so that when He sees the believer, He sees us clothed in the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. He said, well, why do I still have problems? Well, certainly the new nature within us is incapable of sin because it's the nature of God Himself and God doesn't sin. But that new nature is housed in a body that is habituated towards sin. See, in justification... We are, uh, which means being declared righteous. We are we're free from the penalty of sin. In sanctification, we are being freed from the power of sin. In glorification, that is when we're with the Lord, then we are free from the very presence of sin. Why? Because we have a new body to go along with the new spirit that God has given us. That new resurrected body. Notice he talks about his resistance in verse 3 and 4. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. Remember we read this earlier. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. And then he says something that he says uh, twice again after this. There's a little term, selah. Well, most people seem to think that Selah is sort of a pause, like uh, a musical pause, and it's a chance where uh, the musician just, uh, you know, who's playing the harp or the lute or whatever it is, gets a chance to do sort of a little instrumental there for just a, a few moments. And the idea is when you get to that part and the instrumental is going on, just think about what's been said. So when you read Selah, let this thought go through your mind. When you read Selah, just think about that. Selah, just think about that. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Now just think about that. 
I acknowledge my sin to you. Here he talks about his repentance. I acknowledge my sin to you. I didn't cover my iniquity. He did start with, but when confronted, he admitted it. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Now, just think about that. Think about when God forgave you the iniquity of your sin. Therefore, let everyone who's godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Now, God's not playing hide and seek. But one of the things that happens is the longer we sin and the longer we wait, our consciences can get toughened and hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And it'll be more and more difficult to deal with that. So he says, we need to come to the Lord immediately when we've done this sort of thing. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach Him. You, Lord, are a hiding place for me. Notice, David had tried to hide, just like Adam and Eve had tried to hide. But now David realizes, well, the only safe place there is to hide is not in the bushes like Adam and Eve, and it's not in lies like David had tried, but the only place safe to hide is in Christ Himself, Augustus' top lady. Rock of ages cleft for me, let me hide myself in Thee. Let the water and the blood from Thy wounded side which flowed be of sin, the double cure, safe from wrath, that's justification, and make me pure, that's sanctification. That's what he's talking about here. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Now just think about that. And then he says this, and again, this, this answers, I think, to I will, uh, back in verse 13 of Psalm 51, I will teach transgressors your ways. He says uh, in verse 8 of Psalm 32, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. God's watching us. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Don't be a brute beast. A horse is flighty. They'll run off. You know, little sounds sometimes can just, I mean, just uh, a horse is off and away, just runs away. A mule, what is a mule? Yeah, that's right. A mule is stubborn. A mule just dig in their heels when it's better not to dig in their heels. He said, don't run off. Don't dig in your heels. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous. Oh, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. He's reminding his listeners here, don't delay repentance. Don't respond instinctively like a brute beast. You need to trust in the Lord. And as you do, you'll find that you'll be rejoicing in the Lord. So what do we conclude from all of this as we draw our time to a close? Uh, first of all, just a little reflection on the background material, in, uh, particularly in 2 Samuel 11. Uh, regarding temptation, temptation is common to everyone. No one is immune to it. Uh, the Bible says in James 1.14 and 15, but each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. 
Then desire, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. Martin Luther said, you cannot keep birds from flying over your head, but you can keep birds from building a nest in your hair. It's not sinful to be tempted, but it is sinful to yield to temptation. Don't allow yourself to get into a compromising situation. And if you find yourself in a compromising situation, don't say, well, you know, I really need to pray about this. No, do what Joseph did at Potiphar's house, and that's run. Flee! Get away! Notice it says in 1 Corinthians six eighteen, flee from sexual immorality. That is such a strong temptation, men and women. Run! Get away from it. Why? Don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you whom you have from God? You're not your own. You were bought with a price. Glorify God in your body. Now, secondly, regarding the Psalms, Psalm 51 and 32, regarding the receiving of God's forgiveness for sin, while certainly there are human victims involved in our sin, ultimately, in the final analysis, all sin is against God Himself. Our sinful actions and attitudes are proof that we fail to meet God's righteous requirements. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And it's only by turning to Christ in repentance and faith that we can be cleansed from our sin. Now that verse I quoted a few minutes ago, 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made Him who had no sin to be sin for us so that, we, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. But remember, even with full forgiveness from God, there may be natural consequences of our sin that follow us, that remain in our lives. God's forgiveness in Christ should produce within us the desire to live a holy life and to praise Him because He's the one who set everything right with God the Father because He's the one who paid the penalty for our sin. Notice that last passage there from Hebrews chapter 9. For, and it's a, it's a contrast between the sacrifice of the old Levitical priests under the Mosaic law and the sacrifice of Christ. It says, For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, now he's talking about, he's arguing from the lesser to the greater, and he's talking about this is, um, this is how you, the people were ceremonially cleaned. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, do what? Purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Here he's contrasting ceremonially, ceremonial cleansing with a real through and through, thorough type of cleansing. And of course, that only comes from the Lord Jesus Himself. God not only forgives, He protects, He guides, He counsels. We are to trust in Him and to rejoice in Him. Praise be to God for His great mercy. You've been listening to Focus on Truth, the Bible teaching ministry of Chuck Bradshaw. Focus on Truth is a non-denominational evangelical Christian ministry to the marketplace. Your gifts to Focus on Truth are tax-deductible. 
For a free copy of our monthly newsletter, Glimpses of Truth, or other information about the ministry, write to Focus on Truth, Box 5367, Columbus, Georgia, 31906.